pretty big back there. Oh, that looks good. No. <laughs> so, for the purposes of getting through our life, walking through the city, we like to believe that the world we live in, as it appears to us, is pretty reliable. We like to believe that what we see is really what's going on out there. What we're hearing is what's really being said, or what is the, the real sounds aren't there. We like to believe that there is a uh, a reliable relationship between what we uh, experience and what is occurring out there. And to a certain degree, to get around, to not be hit by a bus, to get through our lives, we actually have to <clears throat> sustain this belief. Now the truth is far more complex as it often is. The various regions of your brain responsible for constructing vision, the occipital lobe, the part that's responsible for hearing words, Broca and Wernicke's region, the part that's responsible for knowing how your body feels, the parietal lobe, they are only capable of uh, interpreting small, very small percentages of what is actually going on. At any point, <coughs> we are um, only experiencing something like, when we see, we're only seeing something like 3% of the visual field. The rest is being constructed, a sketch. The eyes will make a quick sketch. Like, you know, if you've seen artists work, they'll do a quick sketch, and then they'll start filling in the details of the person. That's the portrait. The mind works in very similar ways. We make a very rough sketch of reality, and we fill it in by expectations, but not with actual sensations. The same with what you're hearing. The same with what you're feeling. You're constructing in the feeling of the body, constructing the background sounds, uh, rough, rough sketches, and then all the information that remains uh, gets pushed through a thing called your thalamus to the cingulate, which is the executive secretary of the brain, determines what gets through. And um, only a very, very small fraction actually gets turned into fully fleshed out, high resolution, anything verging on realistic depictions of what's actually going on out there. <coughs> As neuroscientists say, we live in simulations. We live in a matrix. The matrix, though, is not like it was in the movie, served up by an internet, it's served up by our own brains. And it's a creation that, as one notable scientist writes, is just, just accurate enough that we don't bump into walls. That's about it. 
But so much of what we're seeing is not actually happening. The Buddha, 2,500 years ago, well, to be accurate, roughly 2,553, according to the Buddha's calendar, came up with a system in the Dharma of explaining how perception works. He said, and it's very similar to our understanding today provided by neuroscience, that the process is broken down into three stages. First, we have intention. Intention is the goal behind what we're using our minds for at any given instant. So, for instance, if you're hungry, the intention will be to get food. If you're lonely, the intention will be to find someone to talk to. If you're frightened, the intention will be to find someone who to link up with, to feel safe with. If <coughs> you need a place to sleep, you'll look for a bed, etc. You get the idea. That's the motivation. Now, the second stage is attention. Once we've set an uh, intention or a motivation, we then look in a direction where we can find what we need. So we attend or develop attention to that area. For instance, I'm hungry, my motivation is to get food, I go to a grocery store and I look at the food shelves. That's attention. I'm lonely, I might be listening out for the phone to ring, or I'm expecting a call. I'll be listening to the sounds. I won't be caught up in sight, I'll be listening for the phone sound. That's attention. And the final part is perception. That's when you select an object worthy of following around and creating a stable perception of that object. Perception is we select someone from a whole field of things and we say, I'm going to buy that piece of fruit. That's what I'm going to eat. Or I'm going to buy that juice to drink. If you've ever been in a party and there's somebody you particularly don't like, or perhaps it's just an ex, your ex goes to a party, God forbid, you'll know how perception works. At one point, you're just, your intention is uh, to just have a fun time. And so your attention is rather, you're just looking around, looking for someone to talk to, and then suddenly, oh no, you've perceived a threat, which is your ex or somebody you don't like. And immediately the, ma the brain locks in on that person and follows them around. Oh, there they go. I don't really don't like. Oh, yeah. You and your stupid, yeah, I bet you're going to steal food now. Yeah. <laughs> and so we lose complete track of every other object with perception. <coughs> Very often, the Buddha said, with perception, we also begin to add labels. And from perception the entire chain of desire and craving and everything or aversion comes out. Now you might ask, okay, I get it. Uh, there's a process to perception. Uh, and by the way, the Buddha's system is very similar today to what 
uh, clinical psychology proposes that we have motivation and then we have awareness and then we have selection. It's almost the exact same system, just different names. So the question then is, why is this important? Why are we even focusing on this? Well, it's <clears throat> the way we develop intentions, use awareness, and create perceptions, every moment of the day has the possibility of either creating a lot of suffering or relieving a lot of our suffering. Let's look at it one by one. <coughs> the default intention of the mind, as set by 50,000 years of human history, our default intention is to survive at all costs. And therefore, if we don't set an intention, if we just allow our minds to work in their default setting, what we look out for constantly are threats and opportunities. Unfortunately, or fortunately for us, we're now the dominant species. Enormous amount has changed. We are no longer actually really ever threatened. And so many of the opportunities that we latch onto, we don't need other, otherwise. We still live with the same intentions that a, the Paleolithic man or woman lived with, which is basically the same amount of cortisol, stress, nervousness, agitation, the mind still looking, as one clinical psychologist called it, I'm quoting, we vastly overestimate the threats that are around us. None of us on our way home will be eaten. I guarantee you. There will not be a clan that will come at you, throw a net over you, and drag you away. Nothing that rises to the real level of threat will occur to you, most likely. And yet your mind, unless you supervise it, that's the way it's going to pick and sort and develop the way it's going to process and focus the mind. It's going to, without supervision, without setting an intention, it's going to stay in that Stone Age mindset. The default setting for attention is to fixate entirely on the world around us and to listen to our thoughts and to pay no attention to the body because the human being that lived for most of our existence out in the wild, threatened, looking for snakes or bears, didn't really need all the time to pay attention to the body, to how they felt didn't need to pay attention to underlying emotional states. It was most important for them to just look and see what do people think about me. One of the most important regions of the brain, the fusiform gyrus, is used almost entirely to read other people's facial expressions so we can figure out if we're safe around them. So without overriding our default attention, we will always go external. We will focus on the world around us. We will live outside of our bodies. We'll listen to the chattering thoughts. 
and we'll get caught up in the facial expressions, the news, the text on our phones. We will not have any body awareness. <coughs> the default perception we have is perceiving everything in terms of self. We all tend to have this idea, as the Buddha said, that um, I'll read you his actual quote. The uninstructed person believes that there's an inner self that experiences life, and that this inner self is constant, and that it changes very, very little. This view, this perception, creates a tangle of thoughts that imprison the mind. It leads to a bombardment of ideas like, what was I like in the past? What will happen to me in the future? What do other people think about me? These unknowables and speculations cause suffering. So, what the Buddha is saying is that viewing everything in terms of why is this happening to me? I must be going through this alone. There must be a reason this is happening in my life and it must have to do with that myself, my personality. <coughs> That creates a huge, huge distortion in our lives that causes massive amounts of needless stress. What is that distortion? The distortion is that we believe what we're going through is unique to some degree to us. I work with people all week long, and one of the greatest sources of misery is not the depression that people experience, or the sadness, or the grief, but the belief that there's something particularly wrong with my grief. My suffering is just a little darker than your suffering. Yeah, I know that you were, you have depression, and yeah, maybe, sure, you were locked up because of it, but my darkness is just a little darker than your darkness. The shit that's happened to me is just a little bit worse. My abandonment was more abandoning. <laughs> <coughs> and so we live in this prism that we can't really deeply relate to others. Because if we believe that what we've experienced is worse, or different, or unique, if we view life in terms of the self, then what happens is we don't feel the permission to really deeply share our dark emotions because we feel somewhere deep inside that you won't get it. I really can't talk to you about my deepest fears because you won't get it. I really can't talk to you about that anxiety I have because you're... You might have anxiety, but you won't understand how bad mine is. And so these three default settings, survivalism, external fixation in the world, and seeing things through the prism of self, keep us suffering. And if we can learn to actually override these settings, to change our default out-of-the-box operating system that the brain comes with and update it by roughly 50,000 years. Your brain was on the shelf for a little while before you started using it. 
then we actually have a chance to have far less obsession and worry and misunderstandings in our life. The Buddha called this process Yoniso Manasikara, which means literally seeing, literally seeing things as they really are, not through the prism of these default settings. Yoniso Manasikara. <coughs> the three sets of tools I'm going to talk to you about have certain things in common. The first is that throughout the Buddha's canon is the understanding that reality is constructed, it is not real. What you see and experience is created by your mind. If you change the way you intend or attend or perceive, then the world you live in will change. It's not like what's changed outside is changing, but what you experience will change. And as there is really no out there that you will ever know, you will only know your own experience, that's just as good as changing the fucking world. The second is that rather than focusing so much on getting upset about the actual objects or content of our lives, spend a little bit more time focusing on how we use the mind itself. It's not the content, it's the way the brain is authoring our experience. So don't, when we are caught up in suffering, when someone has upset us, mistreated us, when we get bad news, take a moment, even though it might seem like the news is really bad, yeah, I did really get fired, or whatever, but ask ourselves, am I overly focusing on this? Am I adding expectations? Am I bringing into it an attention that's only allowing myself to think about the loss of my job? And finally, the third most important thing that they all have in common is that we can change the way we use the mind. We cannot control other people. We cannot control <coughs> so much of what we perceive out there, but what we can control is where we focus and how we use the mind, and we can change our perceptual habits. So, here they are. And I've broken it down into tools that change intention, attention, and perception. So, Setting an attention to counteract the craving, ill will, and the self-centered delusion that is characteristic of being caught up in survival mode, which is the brain's default setting. Set an attention every day to do something different than the way you've done it before. Walk to work differently. If there's somebody that uh, you've de decided is bad, try to practice meadow towards them. Set an intention to, for one day, give up an addictive avoidance strategy that we fall into. For instance, if we binge on TV, just spend a day to let go of that. Set an intention to, as the Buddha said, let go, renunciate, of the things that are our crutches. 
our crutches keep us in that small, vulnerable, I'm weak, I am, I can't take care of myself, I've got to be worried. Changing our habits opens us up to life as it really is. It forces us to take in the world afresh. Be willing to risk opening up to others a feeling, an emotion that we don't generally which makes us override our survival settings towards taking risks to connect. Set an intention to appreciate each day something in our lives that we haven't appreciated. For many of us, it's just simply breathing. But it also can be the beauty of New York architecture. Some of it is really actually pretty cool. Some of it could be the... um, a park that you've never walked through. Some of it could be a friend that is available that has a talent or reconnect with a talent that we have that we haven't appreciated. Every time we break out of our default settings, we force ourselves out and we have to pay attention to how we're using the mind and pay attention to how we're perceiving the world. And that breaks through this survivalist, fear-based, I'm small and vulnerable and I'll never be happy mindset. So the second (coughs) category is attention. And in this, what we want to do is focus on or bring our awareness to how exactly we're focusing our attention. So, for instance, if we notice throughout the day that we are visually fixated. Let's practice in specific situations in our lives paying attention to the background sounds that are available. Or suppose you're at a meeting and it's boring. There's not much visual stimuli. Well, pay attention to how it feels to make contact with the chair you're sitting in. What do your clothes feel like on your skin? What sounds do you hear? What aromas do you smell? (coughs) If we really focus on different sense ports than we habitually flow through the sight, nothing is ever boring, ever, ever. Boring just means we're allowing the mind to flow through the same habitual default visual thing and it's not distracting us, and we're beginning to feel tired or edgy or anxious, and that's boredom. If you want to overdo it, bring awareness, expand it somewhere else. Another example is if you find yourself overwhelmed by an experience, you've gotten bad news, a frustrating news. You've heard something that is disappointing. And the thoughts become what the Buddha said, prapancha, proliferation, everywhere. Ask yourself, how does this experience feel to the body? I've just gotten dumped. I've just lost out on an apartment I wanted. I've just got a bad review of something I've written or drawn. How does that feel in the body? You've probably already listened to your brain enough anyway. You probably have already heard that, oh, well, I should give up. New York isn't for me. 
Finding happiness isn't for me. But before we do that, let's take a moment and instead of asking our mind how the thoughts perceive of experience, how does the body perceive it? When we get bad news, often the stomach will tighten, or if we feel abandoned by someone, often the chest will feel contracted. If we feel overwhelmed, the shoulders will go up, or if we feel angry, the jaw will lock. Can we go into the body and see how it's interpreting our experience, and then can we create a safe container for those emotions to play out, and then can we eventually send metta, it's okay, I'll be there, I'll take care of us. I love you. Keep going. So, instead of getting caught up in interpreting life cognitively, can we feel life somatically? Third is, uh, there's an old Chinese Buddhist saying that if you hold a uh, leaf, I don't have a leaf with me. That's poor planning. If you hold a leaf up to the eye, it can seem bigger than the moon. If you pull it away from your eye, it becomes its regular shape, its size. It's not more important than everything. Very often in life when we have things that we have to do, (coughs) things that we have to deal with, we tend to hyperinflate their importance by focusing on them. And then they become far more important than they really are. And this perceptual or this attentional habit is based on the idea that if we don't make things seem really important by focusing on them and carrying them around in our mind, that we'll forget about them. And actually, that's not what it does. All it does is it makes us fucking paralyzed. If we have an important interview if we have something that we have to write that determines whether we get into graduate school, telling ourselves, oh boy, this is really important, a lot rides on this, you know what happens? We fuck up. Because we've now made it so important that we believe our entire happiness rests on this. And when people basically have all of their emotional guns pointed at their head and say, fuck up, and you die, we don't tend to perform with a lot of authenticity and spontaneity. We tend to, in fact, become very frightened, and we fall back on our most fear-driven past. So, whatever it is you're dealing, even if it's financial insecurity, you might be imminently on the verge of a breakup, or whatever it is you are fearing, Still, pull it away. Bring in other sensations. What else is happening right now? You're breathing. How does that feel? How does the body feel? What else do you have in your life worth being grateful for that you can bring into the mind? Finally, (coughs) undermine the way, or at least question, our perceptions. The Buddha said that, uh, in the Savasava Sutta, he said that certain experiences in life are inevitable, and when they're inevitable, you might as well learn to tolerate them. And he put into that category two wonderful things, amongst others, he said, mosquito bites and other people's words. (laughs) They're both roughly about as pleasant. 
if we try to avoid it, if we get caught up, if we hyperfixate on it, if we perceive it as uh, something that we have to address, if we try to escape its experience, if we label it as like the end of the world, this will create suffering. The better part to do is to learn how to breathe, relax, and soften around the inevitable experiences in life. On the other end, the Buddha said that there will be experiences in life that we can avoid and are deeply unpleasant. And he said, guess what? Those are the things you should avoid. And he used a couple of examples. He used a large pit, a wild, raving, you know, what do they call it? The big pigs. Oars. And finally he said, crazy people. (laughs) It's a Buddhist word for it. You know? Now, sometimes these crazy people are in your family. And it seems like, oh, but I can't. I can't avoid that wild boar that's my sister and my mother and my father. But guess what? You can a lot of the times. You can put them aside and just say, for now, right now, I'm not going to go there. Yes, maybe in three months from now there'll be a family gathering that I have to go through. I'll deal with it then. But until that point, that three months down the line, I'm not going to carry my insane uncle in my mind. I'm going to avoid that perception. I'm going to focus on other things that are skillful. Most of the times in life, it's not the actual person we need to avoid. It's not like we're on the street and there's... You know, the uncle or the brother or the sister. Most of the time it's in our thoughts. I think that's actually probably enough to uh, talk about. I'm just going to review very quickly. It's important, especially when we're suffering, in life to review that The way we experience the world is not actually what's really happening. It's a construction. Even if, yes, something bad really did happen. Somebody died. We've lost a job. uh, A relationship has ended. Something that we wanted to accomplish, um, have a family, have a business, isn't working out. There's so many many different ways that can be perceived and experienced. If we allow our mind to work the way it will work in its default settings, we will gravitate towards survival-based fear, externally flooding and fixating on the problem, not taking in all the other things we could be grateful or appreciative of, (coughs) we will tend to carry things around in our mind as perceptions that we need to constantly bear in mind. If we want to undo this setting, set an intention to try different things, to take risks, to open up to other people, to force the mind out of its habitual intention settings, to bring awareness to a wider scope, especially the body, 
And finally, to know which things in life we have to pay attention to and learn to tolerate, and which things we can give ourselves to permission to put aside. I really hope there was something of value in there for you to ponder. So, um, at this point, it's time for questions. For those of you who do want to...